0: been walking through the story of Exodus. God's people Israel have been enslaved 430 years by the king of Egypt. God has heard their cries, remembered his covenant with their fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's raised up a deliverer from among the Israelites named Moses. Now, but when Moses returns to Egypt to declare God's will, Things go from bad to worse. Instead of granting Moses' request, Pharaoh doubles down on his oppression. As Dr. Light showed us last week, Pharaoh actually increases their suffering by requiring the Israelites to make bricks without straw. And Moses cries out in despair in chapter 5, Why, O Lord? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Have you ever felt that way? Not quite understanding what God is up to and why he is doing what he is doing. God's ways certainly are not our ways. And we see that again and again in the pages of Scripture, and we'll see it again again tonight in the story of the ten plagues. Now, unfortunately, we'll not be able to study each of the ten plagues in detail. I wish I could, but this venue will not allow time for that. However, such a study on your own would be well worth it. I was away on my study leave down at the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation, and I had several days just to read through the story of the plagues, like, Eight or nine different times, and I came up with, a, with an Excel spreadsheet just jotting down my notes. If any of you want them, feel free to email me and I'll share them. They are copyrighted. But uh, it's really worth your time. But tonight we can't go into that depth. What we're going to be looking for is patterns or repetition throughout the plagues to, to reveal the main theme of the plagues as well as the main point. And as we discuss all ten plagues tonight, there's three big ideas that are repeated from chapter 7 of Exodus through chapter 11. And the first big idea is God's purpose for the plagues. The second big idea is God's lesson for us from Pharaoh's life. And the third big idea is God's revelation in the life of Moses. So I'm going to read chapter 7 verses 1 through 7. And then we'll jump into it. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people of the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is God's word. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. So the first thing, what is God's purpose in the plagues? Notice God's purpose is not just to bring... Israel out of Egypt, that certainly was one of his goals, but he also wanted the Egyptians to know that he was the Lord. Look at verse 5, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from, from among them. God could have delivered Israel in many other ways and he says as much later in Exodus chapter 9 when he says, for by now... Pharaoh, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed throughout all the earth. Did you catch that? that God could have struck Pharaoh and taken him out in round one. Instead, he allows the fight to go on and he's going to go ten rounds with Pharaoh and he does it not just so that Egypt would know that he is Lord, but so that he can get the biggest audience of all time so that all the earth may understand that he is the Lord, not just Egypt. This is going to be the heavyweight fight of all time. And God is making sure that this fight goes down as the most memorable, most exciting fight of all time. And his goal has certainly been realized for here thousands of years later, we're watching this battle play out. And, and what made this toe-to-toe battle so unforgettable, so memorable? Now, as a child, it was the fantastic natures of the plague, What is cooler to a 10-year-old boy than frogs and locusts and turning water into blood? You know, those things are just tremendous. But there's more to it than just the fantastic nature of the plagues. There's a bigger story going on here, a truly remarkable story, an underdog story of all time. It's the weak against the strong. Israelite slaves against the mighty Egyptian empire. And Pharaoh, no doubt, thinks it's a weak God and a weak people against a strong people, the Egyptians, and a strong God. He must have thought Yahweh, a puny God indeed, to allow his people to become slaves as such they were. But it's not just the weak against the strong, it's the few against the many. Moses and Aaron against Pharaoh and his magicians and his royal court and his army. And that's why we have 10 plagues because it's really a battle of one God, Israel, against the many gods, all the false gods of Egypt. And round one was against the Egyptian river god of the Nile. And what's the result of round one? Yahweh bloodied them all to death. And round two against Hek, the Egyptian goddess with a head of a frog. And Yahweh not only causes them to choke on their own idolatry but then leaves them piled in a heap of dead bodies. And round by round we go until the later rounds in round nine, the semi-final, Yahweh goes against Ra, the sun god, the most revered god in all of Egypt apart from Pharaoh. What happens? It lights out for Ra as darkness so thick comes over the earth that the Egyptians become imprisoned in their own homes. And then the final round, God reserves for Pharaoh himself. God gives Pharaoh a taste of his own medicine. Pharaoh went after Yahweh's son, Israel, drowning all the baby boys in the Nile. And so Yahweh deals a deadly blow to Pharaoh's son at Passover, destroying Pharaoh's dynasty. See, God could have won the battle in a far different manner, but he wanted this battle to be unforgettable, to be talked about for all time. To declare his glory so that all would know he and he alone is God. He is Yahweh. As a teenager, my favorite movie was Karate Kid. Daniel Russo is uh, forced to move to New Jersey, uh, uh, sorry, from New Jersey to California with his mom, and at his new high school, he develops a friendship with a cheerleader named Allie, who unfortunately is the ex-girlfriend of the school bully, who is a black belt in karate. And Johnny warns Daniel to stay away from his girl and mind his own business. And the teen, the teen drama escalates in all the predictable ways, which is why I loved it. Um, Johnny not only bullies Daniel, but he rallies all of his friends, members of the Cobra Kai, uh, to mock him, to chase him down, and to beat him up outside his own house. Daniel turns to Mr. Miyagi, a local handyman, who teaches him karate. Daniel's frustrated by Mr. Miyagi's strange methods, sort of like Moses is frustrated by the Lord and doesn't understand his ways, but Mr. Miyagi's ways and wisdom is proven out over time. And at the end of the school year, Daniel enters into a regional karate tournament, and he not only wins his way through the lower brackets, he finds himself in the championship round against his arch rival, Johnny. And the movie ends to thunderous applause as Danny beats Johnny. Winning the tournament and winning the girl. I love this movie. It's a great movie. You should see it if you haven't. See, such an underdog movie, it hits a nerve. But not just with teenage boys. I mean, we all long for justice to see life's bullies finally get their just desserts. To finally have to eat what they've been dishing out. This explains why the movie Karate Kid did so well in the box office. But the movie would have flopped had there been no backstory. Had there been no bully, no underdog, we would have yawned our way through a meaningless karate match where punches are thrown, but we don't understand the meaning of the punches. But when we know the hero and the villain and they're drawn out and we see not only the hero's strengths in the battle, but we see their character, not just their speed, but their perseverance, their goodness, their wisdom. We're drawn in and we see glory. That's sort of what's happening as we read the story of the plagues. Only Karate Kid's small potatoes compared to this. This is not simply a fantastic battle scene, but this is a battle for justice, liberty for God's people, vindication of God's reputation, And every punch and counterpunch has meaning. They expose the heart and the character of the contestants. Someone once said, you never truly know a person until you've had to fight them. I know that was true with my wife. (laughs) And in this battle, Pharaoh will know the Lord, and so will all of Egypt, and so will all the world. They will know not only his power and his glory but his patience and his goodness, his wisdom and his faithfulness to his people. God's purpose is that all may see and know his glory. Second big idea, what do we learn from Pharaoh's response? Pharaoh's response throughout the ten plagues shows us the deceitfulness of the human heart. In Pharaoh, we learn what a hard heart looks like over time and even under pressure. It starts out with Pharaoh uh, essentially ignoring Moses during his first two interactions with him. Remember when Moses turns his staff into a snake? Even when Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing, Moses' snake gobbles up Pharaoh's magician snakes. But Pharaoh essentially ignores Moses. And then when Moses turns the water of the Nile into blood, we read in chapter 7, verse 23, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. This ignoring of Moses and God's word, it's, it's what we expect of a hard heart. That's not unexpected. But as the pain increases, Pharaoh moves from ignoring Moses to bartering with Moses. During the plague of the flies in chapter 8, verse 25, when the pain gets to a certain level, he, he says, go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Not, not in the wilderness, but within the land. He's bartering, trying to compromise. The command had been, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And later during the locust plague, at the pleading of Pharaoh's servant, there's a back and forth and Moses is back bartering with God again. It didn't work the first time, but he thinks it's going to work this time. He says, okay, how about the men go? You, the men can go outside the land and, and worship, but not the women and children. That doesn't work, and, but he continues his bartering ways. And later during the plague of darkness, Pharaoh says, okay, I'll let the men and the women and the children go, but not the flocks and the herds. Each and every round, Pharaoh is bartering. He's trying to compromise Bartering with the Lord. So, bartering rather than yielding is again what we expect from a hard heart. But this isn't all that Pharaoh does. Pharaoh also yields under pain, but only to be hardened again under relief. During the second plague of of the frogs, Pharaoh says, Plead with the Lord to take away the plague, and I will let the people go. And as you're reading through the story, you think, Oh, what's this? Pharaoh's heart is beginning to soften it. It looks like he may change his mind and let the people go. But as soon as the plague is removed, Pharaoh again hardens his heart and refuses to let the people go. And this happens again with the fourth plague of the flies. And this time Moses is catches up on him and he says, Listen, I'm no dupe, Pharaoh. I will plead with the Lord only do not cheat again. But as soon as the plague was removed and his immediate pain and suffering is relieved, Pharaoh hardens his heart yet again. And so Pharaoh's response clarifies the Bible's understanding of a hard heart. A hard heart may yield under pain and often appear soft and even seem to surrender control. But as soon as the pain is relieved, they quickly reclaim control and return to their stubborn ways. But this is not all the tricks of a hard heart. A hard heart also shifts blame, either directly or indirectly. And as you look at the fifth and sixth plague, Pharaoh endures these fifth and sixth plagues, but becomes crystal clear that the fifth plague of the death of livestock and the sixth plague of suffering boils are only things that the Egyptians suffer, not the Israelites. What is God doing? God is making a sharp contrast to show Pharaoh that his stubborn heart is the real issue. Pharaoh is the one causing his own pain and his people's suffering. Moses' annoying confrontation is not the problem. And so Pharaoh, like all hard-hearted people, wrongly assumes that he's not in the wrong. He actually assumes he's the victim like Dr. Light touched upon last week. Pharaoh thought Moses was making an unreasonable request to let the Pharaohs go out into the wilderness and make sacrifices to their God. In Pharaoh's mind, the Israelites were just lazy workers who didn't appreciate all the blessings they had in the land of Egypt. But see, whatever Pharaoh's justification, God is hammering home to Pharaoh and to us that throughout the plagues they affect Egypt and Egypt alone and that his problems are caused by him, not a lack of respect from others, not bad fortune, not the Israelites being annoying. God was striking him for his stubbornness and selfishness in causing his people to suffer. So the Bible shows us a hard heart ignores, it barters, it only yields under pain but rehardens under relief and it shifts the blame constantly. Four things we expect of a hardened heart. But there's one last thing as you read through the story of the plagues that a hard heart does that we do not expect. And that is a hard heart can confess sin. In the seventh plague, God sends hail only on Egypt, not Goshen. And Pharaoh responds, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail and I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. What is this? He admits that the problem is not with Moses or Israel but with himself and his people. And then, Pharaoh not only moves from pleading, but he, he, this is true confession. I have sinned. The Lord is right. I am wrong, and my people are wrong. Certainly, this must be a true softening of the heart. But no, we see when Moses stretches out his hand and intercedes, and the hail ceases, Pharaoh hardens his heart yet again, and as did his servants. And we think, well, something must have been lacking in his confession. And then we look at the next plague, the eighth plague of locusts in chapter 10, and, and Pharaoh is again confessing his sin, only this time he goes even deeper. In chapter 10, verse 16, he confesses, not only I have sinned, he says, I have sinned against the Lord, your God, and against you. This isn't just a general sin of confession, a a general confession of sin. He's saying, I have sinned specifically and directly against Yahweh and against you, Moses. And instead of simply asking for relief from his pain and pleading for his pain and suffering to be taken away, he actually asks for forgiveness for his sin. He says, now therefore, forgive my sin. Certainly this is progress, right? He doesn't simply say, plead for me, but forgive my sin. This has got to be a softening of heart. Unfortunately, no. For when his suffering was relieved, he yet again refused to let the people of Israel go. And in chapter 10, verse 20, the text says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the result of Pharaoh's refusal to truly repent is that he ends up isolated to himself in total darkness, threatening Moses that, take care never to see my face again, for on that day you shall die. He's not only isolated to himself, he's isolated from his people. During the last three plagues, Pharaoh's kingdom completely unravels. He loses the trust of his people. His servants plead with Pharaoh, let the men go. They do not yet understand. You do not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? And then it says that Pharaoh's servants begin um, to pay tribute to Moses, that they viewed him as the greatest in the land of Egypt. So Egypt respects Moses and starts giving the respect due to Pharaoh to Moses. And so Moses is utterly isolated to himself, from his people, and isolated from sanity. He burns with an anger so stubborn he's willing to sacrifice his kingdom, everything to protect his own stubborn pride. What does this mean? Left to themselves, a hard-hearted person never repents, and they ultimately destroy themselves. They may appear to repent at times. They may appear humble at times. They may may even confess wrongdoing and sin. And while confession is good, it is not sufficient. It is not the same as repentance. Repentance. Confession does not equal repentance. Only repentance equals repentance. And repentance doesn't happen until repentance happens. And only real repentance changes things. In fact, it changes everything. But mere confession, no matter how heartfelt or seemingly humble, without repentance, it isn't worth anything. In fact, as with Pharaoh... Confession without repentance proves to be a time consuming distraction and ultimately a destructive manipulation. Have you ever been stuck in a pattern of confession that didn't lead to repentance? Have you ever been in a relationship where someone was stuck in confession? They were willing to confess but not truly repent. Oh, may God give us the grace. To not merely confess, but to repent. How does this all reply? How does this all apply? When it comes to a hard heart, recognize the various stages of continued rebellion, whether it's the obvious ignoring and bartering, or whether it's the less obvious but somewhat suspicious sorrow and sort of self-pity when there's pain that, that disappears, when the pain is relieved. Or if even it's the suspicion of confession that doesn't follow with repentance. We need to recognize a hard heart comes in all forms. Now the careful reader might say, well, what of God's responsibility here? If you read through, you see that God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And skeptics often bring this up and say, well, if God is the one hardening Pharaoh's heart, How can Pharaoh be held responsible? How can he be to blame? And we see this. It's a major theme throughout the story of the plagues. And this is a bit of an aside, but it's important enough for us to address. It's an understandable objection, and uh, I want to deal with it in the text. As you look at the various ways the text talks about Pharaoh's hard heart, it's spoken of in three ways. The passage repeats that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and in many contexts it's speaking generally that it's hardened by the situation. We see this in chapter 7 several times and in chapter 8 several times. And then in the earlier passages it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. We see this also in chapter the early parts of chapter 8 and 9. But then with the later plagues it says that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now if we simply read the narrative section, right, we want to say, well, who's really to blame? What happened first, you know? Was it the chicken or the egg? It would seem, if we read just the narrative section, it seems that Pharaoh is the first to harden his own heart. But if we read the introduction before the narrative, it says, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, some believe this means that God simply didn't intervene to soften Pharaoh's already hard heart. But The text seems to say more than simply God didn't intervene to soften. It says God actually acted to harden Pharaoh's heart. And yet, at the same time, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. How do we make sense of that? Well, we should not allow what we fail to understand to undermine what we know to be true. And everywhere in the Bible, we are told that God is all powerful, that he is sovereign. And at the same time, he is perfectly good and he is never the author of sin. He is never to be blamed for wickedness or rebellion. And so while God remains in full control of all things, his sovereignty does not relieve Pharaoh from the responsibility he bears for freely choosing to harden his own heart. And the skeptics out there might be saying, well, how can you say that, Dave? That, that's illogical, that's ridiculous. Well, actually... This is the most responsible and reasonable conclusion we can come to. We may not fully understand how two things are both true at the same time. We may only grasp it in bits and pieces, but we must not deny the truth of either God's sovereignty nor man's responsibility since we know both are real and attested to throughout Scripture. In my college physics lab, we did an experiment that shows... Light functions as both a particle and a wave. Both are true at the same time. And when I began to wrap my mind around this, I said, how can this be? The properties of a particle and the properties of a a wave appear mutually exclusive from our limited perspective. This will blow your mind. In lab, we demonstrated that a single proton goes through two separate slits in a box at the same time interferes with itself in a wave-like way upon emerging from the slits and then makes a single mark on the plate in a particle-like way how can that be how can a single particle be in two places at one time even though it can be measured to have a single fixed location in space and i remember going to my physics teacher and I, my mind is blown I'm like how is this true And the answer I got was not, well, Dave, choose one of light's properties that works best for you and go with it. It wasn't, well, if the idea of light as a particle confuses you, ignore it. Or call the idea ridiculous and stupid and illogical. Dr. Christopher Baird writes, If you find a quantum particle theory hard to visualize, don't let this difficulty tempt you to dismiss it as nonsense. Quantum theory has been experimentally verified in hundreds of laboratories for almost a century now. It's the reason your computer works. See, God gives us conundrums, mysteries in nature, such as the quantum theory of light functioning as both a wave and a particle to remind us his ways are higher than our ways. And we live like two-dimensional beings trying to understand three-dimensional realities, but let us dare not try to force three-dimensional realities into a two-dimensional understanding. God's ways don't contradict We just might not grasp them. They are higher than our ways and they might remain a mystery. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh freely hardened it, yet God also hardened it. God was sovereign, yet Pharaoh was freely responsible for his choices. That's a little bit of an aside for those of you who might be seekers or skeptics here this night or or for believers that want to share that with your seeking friends. Back to my main outline. God's purpose for the plagues was to make sure Egypt and all the world knew he was Lord. Pharaoh's response to the plagues revealed the true nature of a hard heart, that it's dismissive, that it ignores, that it blames others, that it's willing to confess but not actually repent. Lastly, what's Moses' role in this story of plagues? Moses' role throughout the plagues was simply to serve God, to represent him. Look at verses 1 again of chapter 7. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. And then down to verse 6. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. As a man... Moses was made like a god to Pharaoh. That's amazing. How so? How did this happen? By simply speaking all that the Lord commanded him. And Aaron was to be like a prophet of Moses, relaying more information to Pharaoh. Their authority and their power came from doing and speaking, just as the Lord commanded them, not from anything in themselves, not from superior intellect. After all, they were both weak, old men, 80 and 83. And though Moses had been a prince of Egypt at one time, he had been pretty beat up, and now he was just a shepherd. And Aaron had only ever been a slave his whole life, yet despite their human weakness And their low status. They would be made like a God. To Pharaoh. Simply by speaking. And doing what the Lord commands. That is amazing. What does this mean? God loves working powerfully. Loves it. Loves working powerfully. Through weak and lowly people. Who are simply committed to speaking. And doing as he commands. So, how does this apply? First, let's look at Moses and learn. As we trust in the Lord and simply rely on his power and his words and seek to represent him to the best of our ability, it will make us courageous people who are examples of grace under fire. How so? We'll be able to go up against people who can really hurt us and have courage. We'll be able to stick to God's commands, his full word, and not compromise because he has not allowed us to compromise. And when we see those who are enemies yield, show some softness, And we're not sure if this is real or if this is manipulation. We'll be able to, like Moses, plead patiently, for that is what Moses did. He pleaded patiently for Pharaoh to relieve the plague, to relieve the pain and suffering. That is grace under fire. Somehow Moses maintains his poise and perspective, even as Pharaoh returns to his destructive ways and betrays his promise to let the people go again and again. And so we can look to Moses and learn what grace under fire looks like, that there is a secret strength one has as we trust God's word, neither adding to it nor taking away from it, but just trusting it and just representing it. We develop a patient graciousness that reminds us that no one who fights against God will prevail. All manipulation and lies will end, and so we don't need... To be afraid. We don't need to be easily threatened. Certainly we shouldn't be naive. But we know that the Lord cannot be played. And so we can maintain our poise and our confidence. So we can look at Moses and learn. But secondly, we need to look beyond Moses and rest. Moses was a great leader and a godly man. And we should look to him and learn from his examples. But he ultimately failed to lead God's people into the promised land. Moses started his adult life in the wilderness because he had murdered another man and he ended in the wilderness because he disobeyed God's commandments. God did not allow Moses the glory of leading his people into the promised land because God was reserving that glory for another, for an ultimate redeemer that was to come and only this ultimate redeemer could take his people into the promised land. And so we must look beyond Moses to this ultimate redeemer whose name was Jesus. And like Moses, Jesus was a good shepherd. Like Moses, he carried an instrument of wood and he used it to deliver his people. For Moses, it was a staff. God is always saying, take your staff and strike the Nile. Take your staff and wave it over the land. But for Jesus, it was a cross. Like Moses, Jesus would intervene on behalf of the wicked to stop God's plagues. But unlike Moses, Jesus would die to stop God's plagues permanently so they never come again. Like Moses, Jesus would declare war upon every false god and all false worshipers. Like Moses, Jesus would end the tyrannical rule of the wicked. Like Moses, Jesus would stand up to the hard-hearted. But better than Moses, he would not just stand up to the hard-hearted. He would change the hard-hearted from the inside out. He would melt them with his love and his mercy and grace. Jesus is the better Moses and the true redeemer and therefore we can only understand the story of the plagues when we understand the real story, the real hero Moses is heroic, but he is not the ultimate hero. Jesus is the hero that strikes out against every idol. See, God's ways are higher than our ways. And it's just like our God to prepare us for his redeemer through stories like the 10 plagues of the Exodus. So that when we see him, we say, oh, it's like this, but only better. And so let us praise him. Let us revel in this God, who is our true hero, who is true grace under fire, who prays, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, and who has the power to melt even the hardest heart. Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. This was a lot to go over, and Lord, Who is capable of trying to summarize your word? We are incapable. And yet, Lord, we pray that you would take what we've learned from your word tonight, whatever is true, and that you would drill it deep into our hearts. That we would see that you are always up to a greater purpose, that you are always battling and striking out against evil so that you can make your glory known. That you are always exposing false repentance. That you are always showing us what a hard heart is and calling us to true repentance. And that you as well are a God who who enters in and is grace under fire. Father, we thank you that Jesus is the one that not only gives us the hope, of being delivered, of knowing that there's a God who fights for us, but inasmuch as we find ourselves in Pharaoh's shoes as the one who hardens our heart against you, Jesus is the one who can melt our heart. Jesus is the one that proves that you are a God of mercy and grace. Oh, Father, let that truth sink deep into our lives. Let it make us people who rest deeply in you, people who walk confidently. In a world of brokenness, in a world where there is so much enmity and strife and people shaking their hands at you, let it give us grace under fire. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.